Welcome to the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. We are excited to have Dr. Donald Burks, President of Plymouth State University, as our guest. So, President Burks, how are you? I'm doing great. Awesome. This is, hey, uh, great to be doing this. I appreciate here. it. So, uh, we're waiting for that to happen, but otherwise... Uh, it's uh, good. It's a little quiet because the students aren't here right now. But so when uh, do they come back? They they come back the week after next. We have a okay. semester, sort of winter, we call it. Got it. Well, it's interesting weather. I think everyone's uh, seeing nowadays. I'm I'm in. Uh, I'm just south of Nashville, and on Christmas Day we had snow. We had a wind chill of negative ten, and yesterday it was sixty nine degrees. Wow, we haven't gotten that warm. We're at like uh, twenty here. It was ten this morning. So, well, and now let me ask you: Did you grow up in uh, the East Bay of California? I know you went to, to undergrad at UC Berkeley. Yeah, and I did some grad school there at UC Santa Barbara. But uh, I grew up outside of Philadelphia. Okay, but okay. I left there and never been back. <laughs> really. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, the reason I ask is I, I you know, our, our corporate office is in the East Bay and Walnut Creek. Oh, really? Yeah. And we, um, and, and there was actually, so there's been lightning, thunder, and there was actually a tornado warning, which means obviously a tornado touched down in Northern California yesterday, which I, I reached out and said, I've never heard that. <laughs> yeah. No, just across the mountains there. I would, I never heard of it either, but I did. Once I, when I was out there at Santa Barbara, I remember watching uh, little tornadoes. I don't know what they call them, uh, water devils or whatever, uh, right. off the coast. It's all three of them moving along there. So, yeah, no, that, well, that's great. Well, hey, I, I'll tell you, I always like starting out with, you know, your journey. I'd love to learn about you and, and you know, who are the mentors that helped shape your, your journey to the presidency? Uh, I grew up outside of Philadelphia and went to a small Christian school uh, for K through 12. And then when I left there, I just thought I really wanted to go somewhere that uh, I could concentrate on science. So I went to Johns Hopkins for two years. Uh, after I was there, I got thinking about Berkeley and what was going on at that time. It was really a lot going on inside and outside the classroom. And so uh, Berkeley had a program in engineering uh, physics. So I went to Berkeley and uh, had a great two years, uh, a lot of experiences in so many different ways. So many cultures were coming together at Berkeley at that time. And also, I mean, great, uh, great uh, science and engineering because they were so linked and UC ran the laboratories that uh, were around there. So you got a lot of uh scientists that would actually do the teaching and then you could track good speakers like uh heisenberg came one time to uh speak there i remember it was almost like a big event uh having him uh, come by and visit so, so now was, was livermore labs a part of uc berkeley yeah uh lawrence they're called i think they're called lawrence labs okay uh livermore is out a little bit uh east of there in the sort of countryside but they had the the lawrence lawrence labs up on the uh hill behind berkeley so you could just i remember once i walked up there to get a tutorial by one of the faculty members so 
it was yeah it was really a nice setting uh, i think if you were a faculty member or but you're also with a as a student so great from there uh i went to uc uh to no from there i went to miami and mm. the reason for that was uh i had asked berkeley whether i could stay and get the background in biology i needed because i was thinking of going into medicine and so uh Berkeley said I could, but I would be taking up one of the other students' places that was coming in. So I said, all right. So I had a girlfriend that was at uh, Miami University. I applied there as a, as a graduate program in physics under the condition that they'd let me take all the biology courses I needed to take to get the grounding I needed for medical school. And uh, of course, during that time, I stayed and got a master's in physics and then went on and uh, decided not to go into medical school, but decided then to go back out to UC Santa Barbara in a, in a physics, applied physics program. And while I was out at uh, UC Santa Barbara, my uh, the girlfriend that I had met in Miami asked if I would come back for six months because she had just graduated. So I did and ended up changing over into industry for a while so mm -hmm. i was in industry for almost 19 years and during that time i got a phd and a master's phd in electrical engineering and a master's in business so i was almost in school the whole time i was in the while i was working but it was a great experience every time i'd want to leave they'd give me more funding to go ahead so it was it was it was good it was it was i think uh you know, great to have that. The company then got bought out. And so I was looking at uh, going to uh, back into academia. And uh, I was offered a position out at New Mexico State in, uh, in uh, uh, running the physical science laboratory. So I went out to New Mexico State and ran the physical science laboratory, which was great. I mean, it was it was really where rocket science in the uh united states got started uh which was out in um white sands missile range because they brought over a lot of the rockets and the um those that had created the rockets uh, in germany over to white sands before they moved them to huntsville and so there was a there was a it was a great area uh, we stayed there for 10 years and i took over as an interim for research and then from there went on to University of Houston as the chancellor, vice chancellor, and uh, vice president for research. And then while I was there, decided that it would be great to go on to uh, Penn State and do some things on the academic side. And there's a lot of reasons for that, which you'll probably have more questions about that part. So, but that's generally the 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 view of it. I mean, I had great people that mentored me in uh and in, in both business and in academia so i mean i had jay goosh from auburn who was supportive i had graham spanier was very supportive mm -hmm. from penn state yeah bill conroy and others from uh, uh new mexico so uh and then since i've been up here a lot of really good supportive people on the board so so do you remember the moment that you really realized, hey, I love physics? Oh, uh, well, I'll tell you this. 
it was somewhere around 10, 12, maybe somewhere in there. Uh, I remember my dad got interested in uh, amateur radio at the time, and uh, I had two interests back then. It was all electronics and uh, astronomy. So I built telescopes and had all kinds of things. And we had a great science teacher in high school that really did a lot to encourage our background in uh, in science. So, and then my dad was a, a researcher, electrical engineer, PhD, um, and also he taught. So, um, and my mom was an, a nurse, so uh, who became a professor later. So I, I had a lot of those roots uh, when I was growing up. Absolutely. Well, can you talk a little bit about the role of an educator? I mean, how, you know, you alluded to that. I mean, a connection with a teacher, you know, I, I don't think you can understand how important it is to have a relationship with a teacher that really help, help can help encourage you down a specific path. Are there any specific teachers that you can look to to say, wow, I'm really glad I had that individual to really help shape me and help guide me? Maybe even at a time where you were frustrated with certain subject matter. Yeah, I think certainly in high school and through uh, K through 12, the head of the science department was he was a ge geologist, um, but he really encouraged us in all kinds of areas of science. I remember I took so many geology courses from him after hours uh, and went on field trips with him to uh look at structures and, and rock structures and find minerals. Uh, so I varied a lot from where my interest was, but yeah. it taught you sort of the processes of science and the investigative processes. So it was really good. And then uh, as I went on into college, uh, I just found I, I loved it more and more. And I had some great professors throughout that time, particularly at UC Berkeley uh and they were engaged i think what was great about those professors is they were actually engaged in the work and then they were teaching it and the same thing i found when i went uh, i was finishing up my phd at university of dayton is because it was so close to right pat a lot of the individuals there worked with right pat so they were they were involved in actually the work that was done in fact one of my mentors at going through graduate school at the uh, University of Dayton, which I started at UC Santa Barbara, and then we didn't—I couldn't make it back to California, so I finished at um, University of Dayton. Uh, wrote the book on antenna theory, and uh, it was just great. And the department chair—I wasn't planning on doing electrical engineering, but I couldn't find a physics program close, so. Happened to be that the guy who ran the electrical engineering department was a physicist. <laughs> so it was, it worked out uh, really good. But I think definitely I can, I can say there's probably no greater impact. And I've watched that here as being a president of a university that a, that a faculty member has on a student and what they end up doing. It's just uh, incredible. And it, it's, uh, it's one of the remarkable things about education. Oh, absolutely. Now, uh, our do you, do you see your kids following down your path? No. <laughs> well, that's not true. Uh, my son graduated from Penn State with a computer science degree. So he did. And he was also interested in physics, but decided to go into computer science. My daughter became a nurse and my other daughter became a linguist. So 
Uh, and my other last daughter has Down syndrome, so she stays with us. But she likes education, too. So it's good. She gets some tutoring over here, and she loves it. Oh, I love it. Lifelong learning so important. So important. So let's talk a little bit about uh, Plymouth State. Yeah. So let's let's talk about, uh, you know, as an institution, how important is it for you to build local relationships and, and also business relationships as well? Yeah, to explain that, I guess I'd have to start with when I was at New Mexico State. Um, I was wondering what land grants were about, and I was studying that. And I was also redesigning the laboratory there. And it was, uh, it was a rather large and successful laboratory. And I got thinking about where the knowledge invention was occurring, which was between disciplines. And so I got also thinking about how you could build competitive programs when you might be, you know, you're not the MIT, you're not the Harvard. But if you were trying to build a program that would really impact students. And so I started this idea of research clusters, which was the actual applied work of research as it's focused on uh, disciplines and the intersections of disciplines. And so I got involved heavily in uh, nonlinear type processes and looking at them and also looking at how many of the discoveries were made sort of in this in-between part between one discipline and another. So that started a lot of work with the areas and, and companies and also uh, the government labs that were around uh, New Mexico State. And you got to see kind of what the impact was. And you also we also got involved with students because we started as a graduate program to have students work across disciplines on solving problems that were multidisciplinary. And the student interest was really high. So um, I thought, well, this is an area I think is going to be really important. So I developed uh, six or seven research clusters for the New Mexico State University. And then went on to Houston, which was right in the middle of uh, a big city area. And... Um, oh learned to work with and develop the whole cluster approach where I matched up the businesses that were in the area with the, and the, and also what the, the state of Texas had targeted with what we did in the university. So I set up six clusters, which matched the portfolios that the state had developed after the collapse of the oil you know, market in the mid eighties, they want to diversify. So they had set up this arrangement. So we had a very close relationship between the university and the businesses that were in the region. And they had already combined the, the sort of local chambers of commerce together to create an overall group for the whole region. Uh, following that, then I went to Penn state and they had a research park right next door it was struggling a little bit. So what I thought, wouldn't it be great to be able to carry this idea of research clusters into, and part of the idea of research clusters is, and, and later um, just clusters, as we call it here at, New Me at, Penn, at Plymouth State, was the idea that we would take and apply knowledge and in the process of problem solving, 
we would gain something and the community would gain something too. So that was the idea behind clusters. I, I also did a study that said, you know, we were very productive as a country after uh, the Land-Grant Act was signed, but uh, that changed after uh, after the 50s. And we went from being a country that imported four times in finished goods what we uh, exported after and during the Civil War to um, at the right after the war and in, in the early 50s and 60s, we were seven and a half per times uh, what the imports were of finished goods. And then looking at the charts in the 2000s, we fell back to being again uh, what we were around the Civil War. So that kind of drove me in thinking, how do we teach and how do we develop the student population in such a way that follows their interest, their multidisciplinary interest and their multitasking interest into working and breaking down the barriers between universities and their communities in which they're a part. And so when I came here, the first thing I did was take the university and build it around seven clusters, which range from exploration and discovery through to innovation and entrepreneurship. And those were related to what areas were problem sets in the 20th century and 21st century, and also what students were interested in and what our university was good in. So there was this linkage built into businesses. And in fact, we developed four tools of clusters which said, okay, we're going to start off with a wicked problem class and we're going to have an open laboratory which works on and solves problems for businesses around us. And we just had one where we did a mill project for uh, one of the areas in the northern part of the country and uh, in, in the northern part of the state. And we were able then to, uh, you know, really help them along. So we've done a lot of projects across the state. So I think it's been profitable. I mean, you've got to look at this as far as education in the 21st century, I think, is we've got all the information. Students can pick that up anywhere. It's out there. What you want to give them is the context and the structure and give them some practical experience about how you solve things in teams and work together to solve problems that work work across disciplines. We call it sort of an integral education. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So how, how do you define student success? I, I mean, I define it personally on the fact of how successful they are in both impacting uh, the world around them after they graduate and how they succeed in their careers, particularly in ways that make a difference. So to me, if we have a student come out, and I think we're proud of a lot of our students that are doing this, if we come out and we give them the tools they need to be able to follow whatever their passion is, and yet to be able to make a living at it and to have impact, that to me uh, is student success in the larger terms. I mean, there's all sorts of smaller terms you can uh, talk about student success in is how have they succeeded in moving from one, uh, you know, freshman to sophomore and junior and senior. But to me, really, what universities are about and student success is about is can they do what they love and they're good at and work with others to 
create, to build, to follow their passion and, uh, and yet make a living at it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so the value of education is being challenged maybe more so today than it, than it ever has. I mean, I, you know, a lot of um, prospective students are, you know, jumping into the workforce and making a, you know, a high, uh, and it's, it's all relative, but a high per hour wage and maybe not earning a degree. Um, but what do you say to a, to a high school student or, or just a student who hasn't completed, you know, what, what is it about that, the, the, the value that, and, and earning a degree, why is that so important? Well, I think there's a couple of things and I'm just always amazed when I have questions about, uh, you know, what's the value of degree, because there's probably been no time in the history of the United States where the degree has been more valuable. Uh, if you just, even if you just measured in dollars that people earn, uh, I was looking at some of the numbers a while ago and it's almost twice as much over your lifetime that you earn. So that's one aspect of it, but I don't think that's the key part of it. I think what I consider about that is that as you move forward and as you get a degree, you learn so much about the adaptability that's needed to be had when things change multiple times. You're going to have maybe five jobs over your course of your career, maybe even more. And the if you give them the right background, they're going to have the ability to adapt and grow and leverage that. I also think if we're going to stay a country that is on the cutting edge, then we're going to have to have people who can actually be creative and develop the top end of you know new discoveries. So we need that capability. We need everybody, really. But the return on investment is is large with you with a university education it's a lot of upfront but the return averages somewhere between seven and eight percent a year when we figure out from ourselves so uh it's got a good return on it it allows you to create your own businesses and know what you need to do it allows you to follow your passion in lots of different directions over the course of your lifetime uh it also follows a path that more and more jobs if you look out there accepting the trend that's occurred in the last year or two since the pandemic and people just been scrounging for anybody. Um, it, it provides the ability really to be able to go ahead and move forward, uh, and do lots of things that give you the capability and the advantage as you move forward and to be able to grow your career over time. So we need everybody I mean, I can't argue with somebody who wants to be a plumber or an electrician or do construction work. I think those are all great things. And some people really love to work with their hands. I just think you got to find out what you're about. And for a lot of the jobs in the future, it's going to be, you're going to need a degree to do them because of the fact that the nature of the jobs is going to become more complex. I think about this when I was in industry, uh, a big thing was drawlers, those who could draw designs. Uh, and over the course of time, it went from having a slant table that you use to do that with to working on a computer 
to map it out and lay it out and pull in the fixtures and then download the code now automatically to machines. So it's the jobs are becoming a lot more complicated and, and involve a lot more ability to learn over time. And I think going to college gives you that basis. So, you know, I don't think it's a problem if you go and you want to, uh, go and do something else in the meantime, but I think you're always going to be in the learning process and it's not so much that you have to get a four-year degree, but I think you really got to understand the value of education, even if it's a couple of classes towards a degree or a two-year degree. Those are valuable items and historically have been even increasingly more valuable as time goes on. I was looking somewhere where the number of job ads for somebody that had to have a degree, and this is before the pandemic, was like uh, 60 to 70 percent. So uh it's it's only increased over time except for a slight downturn right now. Well and so how how has education changed since since COVID, since the pandemic? Uh I think in a couple of different ways. One is I think since the pandemic we have become more versed at how we do things online. In other words, how do we integrate? And probably I'd say it this way. It's more like a hybrid arrangement so that you've got to have the facility to not only do online, but to do in-person and sometimes at the same time. And you've got to have the flexibility to move back and forth. So I think that's changed a lot. I think uh, another thing that's happened is I think the pandemic was very hard on students. Um particularly when they couldn't be in person. And a lot of the students that are coming in from K through 12 uh, suffered a lot in those years. And I think it's going to be hard sometimes to make up for that. But I've been really encouraged that the students who came in after the pandemic this year have been very engaged and very excited about continuing their education. So that's, that's been a positive, I think, from the if I were to compare students before the pandemic to right now, this class coming in that we had, I would say that the students this year are the most engaged I've seen since I've been here. Whereas during the pandemic, it was actually the opposite. So we had to learn a lot of ways to interest and involve students. Fortunately, we had this clusters approach that works with teams and is more hands-on type of integral education. So I think that helps a lot. But I think um, the automation of education increased through that process and i think the learning of how to do it better and incorporate the lessons learned during the pandemic in how you implement education post-pandemic has improved the capabilities and the abilities of uh, of the uh, of students to both learn and also faculty to teach absolutely and now i um, wh- where are you drawing, where are you drawing most of your students from? I mean, as Plymouth State, what type of students are you looking for? I, you know, I do know there's a large percentage that are out of state, but then um, I would, I, I don't want to assume, but I would imagine it's probably nearby states, but maybe you can talk to me about where, where do you draw from? Yeah, I think we have like 30 states represented and uh, quite a few foreign countries. Uh, So it's not just local. We've got about half of our students are from New Hampshire and half are outside. Now, I would say of those half that are outside, probably uh, 35 to 40 percent are New England states. 
uh, and the rest are a smattering of coming from other countries and from other states. We get, I think the furthest we've had is out in Alaska. We've had some students. Um, we have a fair number of students from Canada, uh, Canada and uh, also California. So let me ask you, so what, what is the draw just from the perspective of being a state school, you're paying less in state than out of state? You mean for the students to come here? Yeah. Well, I think um, actually we're giving the students in another state right now. It's probably cheaper to go to uh, one of the surrounding states that you're that are you are in the state than we are with our in-state <laughs> uh, uh, tuition. So it's not we're not, we're not uh, we're not necessarily the cheapest around. But I think what attracts students are a couple different things. One is our education really is cutting edge. Our clusters approach to education is unique. And I think although more and more are adopting this view of an integral education where you work across disciplines and understand how to work in teams have has grown, it's the foundation of us. We reconstructed the whole university. So we don't even have departments and uh, colleges anymore. We just have clusters and the underlying AUs that are the sort of structural part of the whole system. So I think it's that. I think it's the location. I think it's a it's a great and beautiful location. We're in a small town. We're close to ski areas. Uh, so depending on what your interests are, um, we've got a variety of majors, which are really uh, popular majors. We're creating cluster majors all the time that blend majors together to really allow you to design your own program almost. So I think there's lots of good things. Usually pe people, the reputation is often word of mouth. Um, a lot of people don't know about Plymouth, but then as they learn more and more about it uh, from friends or whatever, their interest peaks. And uh, we've got a really high uh, uh, love ratio, I guess I'd say, for Plymouth State. So the only place I've known it's quite as high as that was Penn State. So two PSUs, uh, students really seem to love the place. Well, absolutely. And maybe could you could you share a little bit about the history of Plymouth State? I know you were founded in 1871, but maybe you could take a few minutes to talk about the evolution. Uh, yeah, of the Plymouth went through a lot of steps. Uh, first, really, the founding of it was sort of a Holmes Institute. I think it was one of the first of the uh, normal schools that were founded uh it started actually we had on campus uh i think it was uh, elementary school and maybe even up to high school at one point uh on campus and we did a lot of the the roots of plymouth were uh teaching and business so those were and then liberal arts was added later uh it moved from being then a plymouth state college to uh, Plymouth State University. Uh, so it's made several steps all along the way to get to where it is uh, today. But it it grew and diversified and changed as the needs changed in the communities around it. And so as we move through the 20th century, became much more oriented towards liberal arts, business still, and education became sort of the three foundational parts. And, then, and when I say liberal arts, a lot of sciences in that group. So I, I have to ask, even if the audience isn't able to see this, um, what, what is behind you? It looks like you're in a recording studio. 
Yes, I am. One of the one of the great things about Plymouth is it's got an incredible uh, recording studio here. So we've got a radio station that's on all the time. And in fact, if I there's two booths here, and if I went over to the other booth, it would be uh, playing uh, for the radio station. So, and I'm surrounded by, as you can see, disc everywhere. I mean, it, we have just about every disc. I sometimes think that was ever created. It's amazing. Well, that's what I wasn't sure. I, I see over your your right shoulder. I wasn't sure if those were tapes, cassette tapes, or discs. I think maybe half of our audience wouldn't know what they were. <laughs> yeah, they're CDs. And then on the other side, you can't see it, is a big tape deck. deck. So we've got both the CDs and the tape decks. So I don't see any um, cassettes here. Uh, I just think they'd use reel to reel and uh, also uh, discs. Well, I, I don't know. We may have to take a few minutes to, to uh, you know, to, to tell our audience, at least the audience that's maybe 14 to 18 years old, what a cassette deck is, what a tape is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we went, of course, through the uh, uh, cassette phase and then before that, the eight-track phase. And uh, that's right. it was just the attempted miniaturization of the old reel-to-reel -reel tape recorders that they used to have. So uh, they did that so that they could you could easily insert a uh, a cassette or a tape or eight track so just like a cd that was the start of really thinking like cds before you had to wind the tapes and hook them up and everything else and it was it was a lot more complicated than it uh, is now with just cds and of course now we just record those cds into tracks that we play all through and it's all electronic now yeah. And then you wonder what the future holds, because I listen to some of my music on Spotify and everything is so virtual or in the cloud. What's what's going to be that next phase of audio and video? Yeah, I don't know, because uh, it keeps evolving all the time. Sometimes I think we might be going back to the old uh, record player days because I see a lot of interest in analog audio. I remember when CDs came in. That was a really hot thing. And then we went to Walkman's and all kinds of different things. But And then uh, Apple came out with its player. But I think really what's uh, going on is there is something about analog audio quality uh, that has become attractive. And same with using tubes instead of transistors. So I think there's going to be a mix. I think I actually think there's some backward trending going on right now to look at what the sound is from a audio disc versus a uh, 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 analog disc as versus a CD, or, which is all digitized. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I have a, you know, I, and I recently purchased a record player to listen to vinyl. Yeah, right. Right. I've got one I set up too. So uh, I fortunately saved some of my old, old vinyl discs for it, but yeah. Well, so where do you see Plymouth State in five years? Uh, I think we're going to continue to evolve in, in our cluster areas. In other words, I think we're going to continually evolve our education to match whatever needs are. So we're not trapped by departments and colleges. So we can adapt really easily to whatever's going on. Like we just started a game design major. Uh, we just started a forensic and these are cluster majors. So what we do is we pull together various disciplines to allow you to create uh, new areas. So I see us five years hence, 
probably evolving continually to develop majors that match the needs of the time period we're in. So for instance, you can create uh, in the interdisciplinary studies, you can create your own program or you can have one of these programs that brings together majors in such a way that creates a new trend. Like for instance, we just started a robotics major and the robotics part mixes a lot of different components together because you got to understand movement and how that happens. And then you've also got to understand the code behind how things happen. And you got to understand engineering and the structure of how you build it. So we skipped right over, you know, the typical engineering majors and went right to how, where is this all headed? What's the application area that's going to be really hot and interesting and provide a real opportunity to be on the leading edge. And so I see more and more of that for Plymouth State University as it moves forward. Well, Dr. Donald Burks, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. It's it's good to be able to talk about some of the things that are happening in education and what it's been like and where where it's going. Well, absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. For more information on the series, please visit us at plexus.com forward slash solutions. Thank you.